Welcome to the Lifeboat Hour with your host, Carolyn Baker. Everybody knows that the days are loaded. Everybody rolls with their fingers crossed. Everybody knows the war is over. Everybody knows the good guys lost. Welcome to the new Lifeboat Hour. My name is Carolyn Baker, and today we are speaking with someone really, truly remarkable who I've been wanting to have on the Lifeboat Hour for a long time. You know, here at the Lifeboat Hour, we continue our uncertain voyage from time to time through these very troubled waters of this era, creating lifeboats here and there by touching into the work of the big hearts and great minds of remarkable human beings on this planet. And the work of many of those human beings are informed by other than human beings who, unlike us, have never lost their way. That's why they're so capable of showing us the way home. Back in 1992, a Jungian analyst and mythologist named Clarissa Pinkola Estes published a renowned classic called Women Who Run With the Wolves, a book that has guided and healed countless women around the world. Clarissa gave us the tools and inspired us to have the courage to befriend the wild woman and wild man inside of us. And for this, we owe her an eternal debt of gratitude. But a few years after Clarissa published Women Who Run With the Wolves, another woman named Susan Eyrick literally began mothering wolves and has been running with them ever since. It's my joy and delight to be able to have a conversation with her today here on the new Lifeboat Hour. She states that the mission of the Earth Fire Institute she founded is to change how people see and therefore treat wildlife and nature. Susan is a licensed psychologist, biologist, and educator. She's taught at universities around the world, worked in maximum security prisons, developed a university, university counseling center, directed a nature conservancy preserve, and lived in remote corners of Nepal and mid and far east, the, Nor the Northwest Territories, and the Amazon rainforest. Her goal is always to see through others' eyes as a way to enhance understanding between cultures, peoples, and species. She founded Earth Fire Institute Wildlife Sanctuary and Retreat Center in 2000 in order to give a voice to wildlife and help people find their own natural voice. As I said, Earth Fire's mission is to help humans change how they see and therefore treat wildlife and nature. Susan lives with these animals throughout their lifetimes, developing deep relationships and insights. This makes it possible for her to bring wild animals' voices into our awareness and into conservation decisions. Earth Fire is located in the heart of rural Teton Valley in Idaho, in the western shadow of the Grand Teton National Park, encircled by wilderness. I urge you to visit the Earth Fire website at earthfireinstitute.org. And now, Susan Eyrick, welcome to the new Lifeboat Hour. Thank you. 
You know, Susan, I know that you've told the story hundreds of times, but I'd like to ask you to tell us today your story of how Earth Fire came to exist as a result of an incredible bond that you developed with some wolf puppies that caused you to viscerally experience your more than human nature. You know, Carolyn, I could tell it a hundred more times. <laughs> it's so alive and vibrant in me. It feels alive and it's a joy to tell it each time. Yeah. So I've loved animals ever since I could come into consciousness and always really loved wolves. I don't really know why, I just always did. And then by, I don't know if you want to call it chance or providence, I was invited to help raise seven wolf puppies. And obviously I said yes immediately. I didn't care what the consequences were. I didn't care how I had to move. Nothing mattered. I was going to go do it, which I did. Um, it's hard to explain what it's like to hold a wolf puppy in your arms as you're bottle feeding it. They're such squiggly little things. Um, a friend of mine held one as an, because she wanted to feel it. And she said, my God, it's like holding onto a moonbeam, which is what it was like, just all lightness and air. So you had to hold them against yourself, um, against your chest and your heart as you gave them the bottle. And as I began to bottle feed them, and held them one by one against my heart, feeling them pull on that nipple, sucking down nutrients in their passionate bid for life. Something just happened to me. Um, a friend of mine who came and saw me, I don't know, months or so later, she said, you know what happened to you, Susan? I said, no. She said, motherhood. Mm. Yeah. I didn't have any children of my own, but I swore that the oxytocin was flowing all through my blood. The bond was so deep between me and the seven puppies. They also became ill, and they all nearly died and required nursing like every two hours for several days. They all lived, but that just increased the bond even deeper. The, intensity of, of caring for them, willing them to live, and they willed to live also. One of them we ended up calling Scamper who lived <laughs> because she was so close to death, but she wasn't going to die. Um, so feeling the passion of these animals, I mean, I've had dogs and cats, and I love all animals equally. So when I say this, it's not because wolves are better than dogs or cats. Right. It's that they're wild animals and the life force in them is more vibrant. Uh, it's like we've, we've minimized it a little bit, at least in dogs. And so you felt this incredible vibrancy and connection and, and passion to live. And uh, the bond was so great that um, I said this, I cannot continue my life without sharing this with other people, sharing the incredible beauty and, and when they grew up, the, the playfulness and the wonderful wolf mischief and the deep bond that lasted right through their deaths, um, they couldn't ever be released, so we lived with them for life. Um, it was just so profound, and one of my the joys in my life isn't just experiencing these things, it's sharing them. Yeah with my fellow humans, like, my God, look at this beauty, look at this, look at this. 
we're living our lives only half or less by not looking and wondering and, and enjoying what's around us. So I wanted to share this with my fellow humans, who these wolves are. And then um, the gentleman who asked me to raise them um, was at the time training animals, wild animals for movies, only by, by a deep connection with them. That's how he worked. And so I ended up, before I founded Earthfire, um, I ended up working with bears and, and all kinds of other wild animals as well. And it was the same, you know, it's fundamentally not any different if it's a bear or a fox or a wolf or a badger or a cougar. Mm. Um, there's an incredible life force in each of them, but there's a cougar life force, a bearish life force, a wolfish life force, but it's still a life force. And then expressed in these incredible beings and then the individuality of each of them. We have six, we had six bears here, six dramatically different personalities, and those seven wolf pups from the same mother, every one dramatically different individual personality. So that's what I wanted to share. These are beings. These are beings of great depth. These are beings with great individuality who really want to live. And so as, as you said, the visceral, sheer visceral connection of it I couldn't share with everyone, but I could do the best I can through writing and, and films and pictures to give people a feel of what's out there that we can connect with, that we can get sustenance and nurturance from and, and give back in this beautiful back and forth energetic exchange that ideally is how we should be living on this earth. Absolutely. Yeah. Uh, last time we had a conversation, Susan, it was an informal one, but uh, you had the window open and, uh, and we got to hear some of the wolves that, <laughs> that, were, that were stirred up by a nearby coyote. So, <laughs> but we don't get to hear that today and that, that's okay. Um, no guarantee, we might. We might, yeah, who knows, that would be great. Well, you know, Earthfire is rescuing and nurturing a number of wild animals, but in addition to those remarkable achievements, what else does Earthfire do? Well, as I said, my passion is to share who these beings are for all our sakes. So we begin to treasure them, treasure what's on Earth for us, and then move to save land for them. Because in my particular Way of seeing things love doesn't mean much if you don't fight for the beloved yeah. it just sort of is something that we take in as a gift to ourselves but it has to be reciprocated so my major focus other than sharing the the wonder and the joy that'll help us become saner more more nurtured more um just plain happier feeling the joy the sheer joy of life other than that to see, okay, what is it that we can do? If you don't do that, you're just indulging yourself at the cost of other life. That's my particular opinion. Yeah. We're being self-indulgent and profoundly selfish and self-centered if we don't. I actually have a, a, a policy that nobody can come visit. And we have limited visits because I don't like the animals to be seen except in, in a deep connection mm -hmm. that um you must understand that you're not coming here for your own entertainment mm. yeah. there's so many places that you can go for your own entertainment or to be healed and not that there's anything wrong with going to places to be healed we sh we, we need it for things that we are you know yes, yes. Um, being human is not easy but if you're coming here it's a, it's for the animals and for life and for the earth 
-hmm. In the process, you will get healed, but that's not why you're coming. Um, we're coming in order to do something for the rest of life. We've taken enough at this point. And the irony, as you know really well, is if you do that, if you give back to life, you become more alive. You become more nurtured and happy. So it's really a beautiful thing that the way we're operating now is simply insane in the sense that it's not necessary, it makes no sense, and it's lose-lose. Mm -hmm. And there's no ultimate reason we can't have the win-win of sharing the beauty, maintaining the earth and life, and having rich lives. But to answer more directly, so we, we work to, um, when people come, I ask for a commitment that they're going to give back in some way. And the primary way I ask them to give back is to do something in their own communities mm. to work for saving land. Mm. And I talk about wildlife corridors, weaving them throughout the continent, learning how to live with wildlife. It doesn't work to separate ourselves from it because we simply invade every place that we've left for them. Yes. How to work, live with them and have interwoven corridors where they can migrate and live. So a major focus is on education. And the other thing is, we're all so overwhelmed, often scared, don't know what we can do. A lot of us are feeling majorly disempowered. So a major focus is to try to help people find their own power. In what way? Can you say more about that? <laughs> so we have these conservation conversations once a month online. Mm. And we explore that in a warm, supportive community conversation. Mm -hmm. Or we can explore for ourselves what it is we think we can do, why we limit ourselves, what are the sources of limiting ourselves, but the but that's only in order to get to what we can do. There's so many wonderful, wonderful inspirational stories of the power of one yeah. with environment and animals. Yes. Um, one of my favorites is Jill Robinson of Animals Asia, and the incredible work she's done in rescuing um, bears from biofarming mm -hmm. and changed the culture and got a memorandum of understanding from the government of Vietnam to stop this yeah. process. One, one, one little white woman. The, yes. the power of one, and then the power of small community. Mm -hmm. And so the, the conservation conversations are developing an online sense of community to support one another in our fear and our courage and our daring to explore and bringing in examples and exploring um, how to connect more deeply with ourselves or inner wisdom or inner strength that's our birthright yes and then gets cut off particularly with women but but in most of us we don't understand the full power we have with strength or capacity to make an impact yeah. and the animals teach us that and I love that when people come to visit or not visit but to spend quality mm -hmm. time with you on the on the on the farm uh, they they have to commit to a relationship Mm -hmm. They're not committing to, well, I'm just going to observe like I'm going to a zoo, that they're committing to having a relationship with these beings. And the animals love it. Yeah. They look, so we only have a few visits and retreats a year mm -hmm. so that the animals don't get overwhelmed. And so we have time to um, prepare the people that this is, in effect, a sacred relationship. And the animals love it. Of course. They look forward to it. They uh they respond in many very interesting ways. I'm sure they know they're healers. <laughs> they're really playing a part in healing these people. I think at least some of them do. 
Well, that kind of leads to my to my next uh, question here. You know, as as you know, Andrew Harvey and I are finishing up our next book, Divine Animal: Our Sacred Relationship with Creation. And one of our assertions is that because we humans are muddling around the planet with tortured human souls, we're consciously and unconsciously inflicting ghastly levels of suffering on other species. Mm. Andrew and I are also asserting that if we were as a species to become students of the wisdom and intelligence of animals, there's a good possibility that we would no longer be tortured human beings and may even experience, uh, you know, some sort of evolutionary leap as a result of opening to the yet untapped wisdom and intelligence of animals. I know you resonate with this, and I, I wonder if you could say more about that. Well, I agree with it all. I, I sort of said some of it before with respect yeah. to tuning in. Um, more and more we're beginning to realize Aboriginal peoples knew it before, but we as a Western culture are beginning to realize the intelligence everywhere. Is coming out in more scientific studies, like you know, books on the octopus, the soul yes. of the octopus, yes. the yes. hidden life of trees. Mm -hmm. um, an article I just did on slime molds. I'm quite passionate about slime molds. They're so, they're so incredible. They, these, these beings that kind of move across the ground as a slime mold, slimy thing, and then turn into a, a spore and plant. Mm -hmm. They can outperform computers in laying out a transportation network. Wow. Is that article on your website? Yes, it is. Okay. I think it's called The Intelligence of Slime Molds. Okay. Um, I was fascinated with them as a kid as they just, I just watched them, but the intelligence of, of an amoeba kind of thing, able to outperform a computer, there's such wondrous things beyond what we know. I mean, and you can, it just adds such a sense of richness. Absolutely. And, you know, there was an article on the BBC recently, um, about, you know, basically the headline in the article was we're only part human because our bodies are made up of so many microbes and... and like 90% is yes, not... Yes, yes. It's other life. We're a living, vibrating community ourselves. So what do we mean? Uh, I'm human and they're animals. <laughs> well, every time we go to the bathroom or every time we eat or every time we have sex or enjoy a massage, um, we're kind of animals. You bet. In fact, all of our primary enjoyments in life are the same as animals, other than art and music, which is the wondrous stuff that we humans can have and offer. Well, I think whales enjoy that kind of music a lot. <laughs> Seems like they do. Oh, yeah, but they, they can't create a Beethoven symphony. No, that's true. That's true. <laughs> they, create other, they create other kinds of symphonies. Oh, I absolutely do. <laughs> yeah. They absolutely do. So that's a level of um, beginning to be aware of their sheer intelligence. Mm -hmm. um, another thing that we can begin to aware of is the connection and communication, like in the hidden life of trees, of on and on research about how trees are actually one interconnected communicating family in a sense, even though they're different species, and that they will keep dead stumps alive if they can. The whole profound... Um, lessons you can get. I don't love the words lessons and teachings because it's a little um, pompous. I don't think that's how life thinks of it. Mm -hmm. uh, examples would, uh, might be a better word, but um, of how to live in harmony. Yeah. Not that one tree doesn't try to out-compete another, which is also a fact. You can't get too 
um, maudlin or um, what's the right word I would use? Um, to airy fairy with it. Yeah. Life yeah. is vibrant. Life has tragedy. Life has all those other things, but it also is intensely cooperative and magical. Yes. Yes. And to learn how to do that, how to compete when you need to, because to some extent we do have to for resources and yet work in harmony and cooperation. Mm-hmm. Um, and then the sheer depth of, I don't know if love is the right word, but when you connect with other life, any form of life, there's this profound, deep, simple sense of companionship. Yes. And that's, I don't know if you want to use the word wisdom or not, but it's there waiting for us. It's just waiting. Yes, it is. I would use the word wisdom, absolutely. And there, And I personally think that there hungry for us Mm. if we would go into a forest with the right attitude and right is a strong word too i mean a a loving humble receptive attitude i personally think the forest welcomes our presence i do too we're not anything negative on the planet inherently Mm -hmm. and they welcome the companionship and they welcome the the higher brain activity if you will that also resonates and they can share with us the deeper simpler one, not as complex, not, not less, but not as complex. So I think, I think what, I, what I've said is I think the earth is lonely for us. I think other life is lonely for us. I think it's, and it's, it's sort of an anthropomorphic word, but I think they're confused mm-hmm. by why we don't see it, feel it, and respond to it. And... Uh, that's kind of like the most profound wisdom because if we feel the companionship, we're no longer lonely ourselves and then we preserve and we enjoy and we glow. Mm. Mm-hmm. I believe all living beings want to be seen. Mm-hmm. I wholeheartedly agree. Want to be seen and appreciated and then they glow. Aren't I beautiful? Yeah. <laughs> but I'm only putting human words on it, but that's really the feel. Yeah. Look at my treeness. Look at my, you know, look at my wolfness. Yeah. And well, to be, you know, all of the great animal ex- science, you know, the researchers and people that have lived with them. Jane Goodall basically talks mm-hmm. about this. Mark Beckoff, who's also going to be in our book, is a friend of mine here in Boulder, um, who wrote the Animal Manifesto. It's, you know, it's profoundly. They want to be seen and heard and appreciated, like yes. we do. And because we're all the same. Absolutely, because we are one. As well as magnificently different. Yes. (laughs) Both as a species and as as individuals within the species. There's this gorgeousness of the same and difference. Indeed, there is. You're listening to the new Lifeboat Hour, and I'm your host, Carolyn Baker, and today I'm speaking with Dr. Susan Eyrick, founder and director of Earth Fire Institute, a wildlife sanctuary in the shadow of the Grand Tetons in Idaho. It's my great pleasure and privilege to have these kinds of extraordinary conversations with extraordinary individuals regularly on the new Lifeboat Hour, and it's a total labor of love, love for the earth, love for truth love for justice, and love for the sacred that is at the core of all living beings. 
Nothing gives me more joy than spotlighting the work of the folks I invite to come on this podcast. But it does take time and commitment, and that's why I would really appreciate your support by leaving a donation for the new Lifeboat Hour when you listen to or download the podcast. Thank you in advance for your support. And returning now to my conversation with Susan Eyrick, I'd like to say... Susan, I, I personally believe that, that what most humans need right now is to have their hearts cracked open through the human-animal bond. In a recent conversation you and I had uh, for, for the Divine Animal book that Andrew and I are writing, you spoke of the ache of the beauty of animals, the ache of the beauty of animals. It's a notion that I felt all my life, but never had the specific words for. Would you talk with us more about the ache of the beauty of animals? It's hard to talk about feelings, really. Um, I think anyone who's ever loved deeply, loved their own child, loved a dog, loved a cat, bird, you ache with love for them. You want to do well by them. You want them to be the most they can be. You want to alleviate any suffering you can. But mostly it's the, it's the ache of beauty. You can feel it in, in really great music or watching a, a whale breach or it's that bittersweet ache of the magnificence of life. And it's always transitory. So there's that element of, of beauty, but it's not anything you can hold. And transitory is not right, the word. Ephemeral. Mm -hmm. which, which is the part of the ache of the beauty. Yeah. But also it's just so beautiful. Yes. <laughs> How can you do anything other than ache with it? I wrote that particularly about an exquisite little coyote I had called fairy tale. Mm. There are all these different types of personalities in coyotes. I mean, was, we had a coyote called Pimpernel. Just, she was as big as a whale. I mean, her energy field, she just took over everything. And we had one who was wickedly mischievous and manipulative. Just you could see the intelligence just shining out of her eyes. And then there was fairy tale, this tiny, delicate little ballerina so afraid of life because we don't know what happened to her and yet so courageous she kept facing her fears in one way or another um and i just ached with looking at her for the sheer beauty of her body and spirit we allow ourselves to be touched deeply by these creatures and um that changes us forever. Mm. I certainly have experienced that. That um, I would, I've been forever altered by certain animals that I've had relationships with. Mm. It opens and connects you. You bet. And you can never go back, and neither do you want to. No, absolutely <laughs> not. <laughs> Well, when, you, when we spoke earlier this month, uh, you also talked about the very dark side of human-animal interaction. Um, 
One of the very negative factors is the criminal element involved in animal abuse, like drug trafficking, poaching, trophy hunting, dog fighting, factory farming, inhumane animal research, and other highly lucrative horrors of animal extermination and torture. And you said that these are reasons why people must gain their own personal power in order to counterbalance these enormously predatory powers. Much of your work at Earthfire is to empower human beings through their relationships with animals. Now, you did mention, you know, wanting people to go back into their communities and do whatever they can do for saving land. But can you say about say a little more about other ways that you want to and do empower people? Saving land is essential because without that, the animals are off the earth. Yes. Um, which is why I focus on that. I think we need to work so it's a way of, of helping to open people's perspectives is what I do and, and see alternatives so and work on fundamental perception changes. If you, I think it's really important to work politically. It's important to have activists. It's important to work legally. Mm -hmm. It's important to work on all these levels. Um, basic conservationists um, approaches. But it doesn't work long term if we don't change attitudes. Yes. The Environmental Protection Act can be um, undone. Is being undone. That, like, in March or so, February or March, we had something like 197 uh, attacks on the Endangered Species Act, according to one speaker I yes. heard. Yes. So it doesn't work. And saving a little bit of land doesn't work because the next generation will say, oh, look, there's this land saved. Let's take half. Right. Balance, right? And then the next generation will take half of that. And if you don't have a larger perspective um, and you don't have, make a fundamental shift in attitudes and heart for at least enough people to make the, the tip the balance so that people will never necessarily be warm and loving towards life are controlled by legal and social mores. If you don't make a fundamental shift, Ultimately, all those efforts are not going to do anything. That's my approach. Whether I'm right or not is another matter. Mm -hmm. But that's at the level at which I, I work at trying to do that. So if there, if there are fundamental shifts in attitude, then you don't allow, you personally don't treat animals terribly, and you also see to it that there are laws and structures and community values put into place that you hold people accountable who do that kind of thing. Mm -hmm. And you can fight a particular farm or a particular this or that, but we also need to work on that fundamental overall change. It's the hardest to do. It's not that visible. It's not as visible as going to a shutdown of fur farm, say. Um, but it's an essential element of the whole approach towards changing our attitudes. I don't know if that answers your question or not. Yes, it does. And you know, as, I, as, as you were talking, I was thinking about a story I read this morning, I think it was in The Guardian, that um, you know, we're at an anniversary, and I forget how many years, oh, in 1986, so it's 32 years, I guess, since Chernobyl. Mm -hmm. And uh, the story featured 
how, how so many animals in Chernobyl are thriving. Mm -hmm. 32 years later with all this nuclear waste, and the point of the story was nuclear waste isn't what hurts them. Humans are what hurts them. And of course, there aren't any humans around in that area because they're all gone. But uh, the animals are doing very well. Uh-huh. Do you have any thoughts on that? <laughs> I think left to its own devices, life is incredibly resourceful. And I don't know what the right word is. Is, is it life? Is it the creative force? Is it... Uh, uh, shimmering kind of intelligence that infuses everything but if it's left alone these exquisite patterns come back into being yes we are disruptors yes we don't need to be disruptors we could be joiners <laughs> but we are disruptors and we with with we blunder into these systems not even having a clue of how we're disrupting yeah. and so when a place is left alone it can come back into its own balance. Mm -hmm. I don't really understand myself how come all the nuclear stuff doesn't give them cancer or whatever. Maybe it will ultimately, but even so, they're thriving. Yes, they are. Yeah. And maybe they won't even get cancer from it. That, that I don't know. Yeah, we don't know. Well, my last question to you today, Susan, has to do with another topic that we discussed in our conversation for Divine Animal. Essentially, you talked about how encouraging it is to see humans listening more to animals than we ever have in the modern world. The main ray of hope is the shift in listening, uh, you said, and, and we're seeing some baby steps, such as an increase in including dogs in our lives, allowing them to take plane trips with us and incorporating them in hospitals and nursing homes, using comfort dogs in stressful situations. And you also said that the next step is to include wild animals in our lives in a way that enlarges our sense of the earth community. You said that this is a place from which we must make decisions. And if we made decisions more from that place, we would have no environmental problems. So I'd like you to say more, if you would, about making decisions from that place. How would we be different human beings? And how might the world be different if we made decisions from that place? Well, one of my favorite themes is the idea of enlarging our sense of community to include all life. Truly enlarging it, our sense of community, so it's not the community ice skating rink and church, which is wonderful, but all the trees and the earth and the microbes in it and, and the rivers and the birds and everything so that we have a sense of community where they're truly part of our community. Mm. So we consider the trees and the plants and the microbes and we don't just mindlessly bulldoze uh, areas without uh, completely oblivious to all the life that we're destroying just in the soil. Yeah. Was it something like 10,000 uh, bacteria on a single grain of sand? Way, it's probably more, but way more than that. So if we are, um, we need to include all life. If we truly include all life, then we hear it in one way or another. And we hear the wisdom of the trees or the wisdom of the soil, not literally, but yeah. we absorb it. And then we consider it in our decisions. 
Yes. We're not just considering, okay, humans need a skating rink. Yep. And let's destroy the land for that. If it's done with respect and care, of course we need to use resources. But respect, care, and no more than we need. And a really careful decision, uh, evaluation of what exactly is it we need. I'm a big proponent of voluntary simplicity. Yes. Because we need so much less than we know, think, and we wouldn't be taking all these resources out of the earth if we needed less. And the idea of, of going back to your question, that we share the earth so we shouldn't take any more than we need. And the wonderful result is that we're so much happier Absolutely. and freer. I lived in a little uh, Sherpa community for a while um, up on the border of Tibet, and they had almost no physical possessions. And they also didn't kill anything because they thought life was sacred. Um, and their life was so simple. And when I asked them about it, they said, because we're focused on the, basically the beauty of life and spiritual matters. We didn't need any more. And they were the happiest people I've ever seen anywhere. And I wrote a little article about it once. They're just sheer. You see them beaming with happiness. All the children are loved and included. The forests are the best preserved in, in that area. Um, so the, the consequence is if you include life, all life, you have well-preserved forests, you have happy children, you have happy marriages, nobody starves. <laughs> so that's the human side of it. But we also make decisions that include other life, and therefore we're not destroying it because we include it in our thinking. And even if we don't understand that that's going to save us because we actually need trees for oxygen and, and yeah. all that kind of thing, we don't even have to know the science of it. We go from the sheer idea of community and including them all, we save ourselves. Absolutely. Thank you for that. My guest today has been Dr. Susan Eyrick, founder and director of Earth Fire Institute, a wild animal, animal sanctuary in Driggs, Idaho. And you can learn all about the work of Earth Fire at its beautiful, engaging website, earthfireinstitute.org. Go to the website and let yourself be drawn in, and please consider getting involved directly in some way. The animals are asking you to listen and act. Susan, thank you so much for joining us today and many blessings to you and the animals as you work with them and love them. Thank you, Carolyn. A pleasure to speak with you. And until next time, everyone, stay well, stay safe, and stay awake. <laughs> Thank you for joining us today. You can hear all podcasts and learn about Carolyn Baker's other works at www.carolynbaker.net. Her daily news digest is available by subscription and is delivered to your inbox seven days per week with real news on economics, environment, geopolitics, civil liberties, and cultural issues, plus links to articles on inspiration and resilience. Come sail with us again next week on the Lifeboat Hour. Everybody, everybody.